Hello, good morning, good morning. Hello, I hope you're doing all right. It's great to see you here this morning. As Steve said, my name's Paul. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, I hope we get the chance to chat at the end. Um, so I'm wondering if you've ever encountered a significant setback in your life. Maybe, you know, the job you hoped for, you went for the interview and sadly didn't get it. Uh, perhaps the house move or house sale fell through at the last minute. Uh, maybe you didn't get the grades you wanted for the uni course you were applying for. I wonder if you've had a setback like that of some kind or other. Um, Whilst, what some of you may not know is that um, whilst Emma and I have now been married for nearly 23 years, uh, we had something of a rocky relationship leading up to that. And um, we went through uh, a series of getting together and then breaking up, going out, breaking up. And without doubt, the, the lowest point was actually when we got engaged and then afterwards got unengaged, which I wouldn't recommend uh, to anybody out there. So we, we, we reached the point that we, we realized this relationship isn't working as it currently is. We're going to have to stop and call an end to everything. This was 14 weeks before we were due to get married. We had, I know, I know, it's, it's still raw now. It's, um, we had the wedding invites sorted. We had the hall booked. We had the wedding dress material all purchased. It was, it was rough. And I remember now how um, we handled uh, that breakup um, uh, for me. I handled it in the way that many guys in their mid-twenties will handle a setback like that. I, I retreated to my sofa, ate microwave pizza, and watched more action movies than a healthy for a young man. That was, that was the way I handled it. Emma, it won't come as a surprise, she had a slightly more godly response. Um, she, um, she was reading the passage that we're about to look at. Um, in a moment, and uh, her response was to realize that she had her 25th birthday coming up, and she'd expected to be a married woman celebrating her 25th birthday, but was no longer going to be. So she decided that what she would do is she would throw a party and invite a whole load of people who wouldn't normally get invited to a party to come and celebrate her birthday with her. And that is how what we now call the Friday night meeting was first birthed over 20 years ago, which is just a remarkable thing. It's, it's an incredible, beautiful ministry of including people who are lonely, need company, or just need a warm meal. No questions asked, just come, join us. And every, every Friday, 50 or 60 people or so come and gather and just get fed in a wonderful community kind of environment. And that's down to what Emma started way back then. I've got to be honest, Friday night meeting isn't the most imaginatively titled group that we've ever run, but at least you know when it meets. You know, that's the plus side. But it's just another indication of how God has worked within us as a church community to help serve the poor. So when it came to looking at this passage together, I thought there's nobody better than Emma to come and read it to us. So Ems, why don't you come and read it to us? Thank you. It was actually called The Feast, Friday night meeting when it started, uh, but that's got lost in the passage of time and it has become F&M, Friday night meeting. So the passage starts, when Jesus noticed that all had come to the dinner and were trying to sit in the seats of honour near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. When you are invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honour. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat, then you'll be embarrassed, and you'll have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. 
Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you'll be honoured in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then he turned to his host. When you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives and rich neighbours, for they will invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. So this is the parable of the great feast. Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, what a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied with this story, a man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests, come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I've just bought a field and must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married so I can't come. The servant returned and told his master what they had said. His master was furious and said, go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. After the servant had done this, he reported, there is still room for more. So his master said, go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full for none of those I first invited will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. Great. Thanks, Stone. Brilliant. Yeah, you can clap my wife. Yeah. Thanks, Stone. So, okay, did you, did you get what was going on there in that passage? There's, a, there's, there's this gathering, but it suddenly turns all very awkward when Jesus tells this parable. And, and you can imagine that the, you could have heard a pin drop in the room as Jesus finishes his story there. I don't know if you've been in a socially awkward situation like that where the room goes silent. I know that, sadly, I have on many occasions. The one that sticks most clearly in my mind was my graduation ceremony. Do you know if you've ever been to a degree graduation ceremony? They're incredibly boring, tedious things that stretch on for many hours. Any moment of light relief is, is a really welcome. And um, we had this uh, procession, really, where you, you went to one side of a stage, they called out your name, and then you went up onto the stage in your gown and mortarboard and all the rest of it, shook hands and got a little certificate. This process went on for many hours. It was at the Barbican in London. And uh, all went fine until they went to call out my name. And the guy reading it out misread it and read it as Paula Johnson. <laughs> now, I've been studying for three years for this degree. There was no way I was going to go on the stage to Paula Johnson. <laughs> So I refused to move, in which case he read it again and then finally got the name right. By this time, everybody that had been nodding off was suddenly very interested <laughs> as to what was going on. And I walked onto the stage with this sort of silence and everybody staring. Paul, oh, let's look a bit odd, you know. It was like that. It was just suddenly Jesus drops this like a hand grenade into the setting. You know, they've all been sat, uh, reclined around a table. Um, in this kind of situation, they'd have all probably been comfortably full, maybe had a glass of wine. Everybody's feeling really relaxed. And then, like a grenade, Jesus drops it, this parable, into the gathering. You see, this banquet that he was attending would have been following a strict social etiquette. Only the people who were invited were allowed in. 
and the host and the most important people would sit at the head of the table, and there was a pecking order all the way down to the least important people who would be sat at the foot of the table. And each person was concerned with their own social standing. They wanted to work their way up the table, if you like. Everybody was wanting to impress the people around them. They wanted to be seen by others and be seen to be important. They wanted to project a favorable image to everybody around them. And then Jesus tells this parable about what God's kingdom is like, and it's completely the reverse. In fact, the important people don't actually even attend the banquet he describes. He describes it as a great feast and that many are invited. And we see the contrast. I've even put it on a little chart for you between their society and the kingdom that Jesus is building. You see, Jesus' kingdom is inclusive, not exclusive. It's free. There is no pecking order. There is no hierarchy. Everybody is welcome, irrespective of their education, social background, or finances. Everybody is in. And the contrast must have been like a wet kip around the face to these people listening to Jesus. That's why it's so shocking to them. But my question for us this morning is this. If you look at the left-hand column up there, is it so very different today? I mean, we live in an image-obsessed society, don't we? Uh, Media image and social media uh, puts a tremendous pressure on many people, particularly young people, to present a certain way to the world. And many young people compare their lives with their Instagram heroes and see a mismatch and feel bad about the life that they're living. Did you know that over the last 10 years, the number of young people aged 16 to 25 who consider that their life is not worth living has doubled? In 2009, it was 9%, which is a shocking figure in itself. But in 2019, the same survey, 18% of young people felt like their life wasn't worth living. Isn't that a terrible indictment on our society? 57% of young people said that social media creates an overwhelming pressure to succeed. But it's not just about the image management either. We live in a society with many divisions. Social isolation has a massive impact. Um, In another survey back in 2016, it estimated as a result that 9 million people in the UK, so nearly a fifth of the population, said that they are always or often lonely. Isn't that terrible? We're more technologically connected than ever before, but further apart from one another. And we know that loneliness impacts on health. The studies have shown that if you're lonely, it's the equivalent impact on your physiology, on your body, of smoking 20 cigarettes a day. You're 26% more likely to die young if you're lonely. You know, 2,000 years on, we're still much like the people at this party Jesus attended, aren't we? Desperately looking for significance and connection. And this parable couldn't be more relevant to 21st century Britain. So my question is, what has God wanted to say to you this morning as we look at it together? Because Jesus identifies a number of different groups in this story. Firstly, there are the original guests. Most likely, Jesus is referring to his Jewish hearers who heard the gospel first. And they're invited, but then they say they cannot come. And the reason they give is actually about attachment 
to other things, a field, some oxen, and a new relationship. But if you look at it, their excuses don't really make any sense. Um, one's just bought a field and he wants to go and look at it. So he's bought the field without seeing it beforehand. That's like buying a house and not actually going to have a look around it. Another one says that he's just bought five pairs of oxen and wants to try them out. So I'm not an expert on oxen, but that sounds a bit like buying a car without test driving it first. Another one says, oh, I've just got married, so I can't come, even though his wife would have invited as well. So that doesn't make sense. And each one of these distractions, they say, I can't come because it's not a good time for me. But the truth is, every one of those things that they're drawn and engaged with, they could come back to us some other time. They're saying, in effect, this is, just isn't good for me. This isn't a good time. But Jesus isn't saying we need to note that there's anything wrong with owning fields or houses or having a career or anything like that. You know, so feel free this afternoon if you want to go out and buy 10 oxen, you know, go for it. I wouldn't recommend you get married this afternoon. That takes a bit more planning and thought, particularly in my experience. But he's not saying there's anything wrong in those. But the point is, what is it you're clinging to? What is it you're attached to? What's got hold of your heart, put another way? You know, in colonial times, um, this is how monkeys were sometimes caught in Africa. You can see in that grainy old photo there, that image, you can see there's a monkey, and it's actually got hold of some peanuts that are in the bottom of that jar. And because its hand is grasped around the nuts in a fist, it can't pull it out the narrow neck of the jar. And that's how the monkeys were caught. They were literally captured by that through what they were attached to and clinging onto. This monkey literally lost his freedom for peanuts. <laughs> yeah, I've spent a while writing that line, but you get it. You might well say here this morning, well, I'm a Christian, so, so God's got my heart. In which case, my question would be, well, what's the second most important thing to you then? Because that's the thing you'll be most tempted to hold on to. And as a result, because these people won't let go of their attachments, they miss out on the banquet. When all along, the Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul. He's got to be number one. He's got to be the one that we're clinging to. So there's a warning there for you and I. But next, once these uh, first people have been invited, come back and say, no, we're not coming. Well, then the master sends out the servants again. And who does he send them to? He sends them to the poor the crippled, the blind, and the lame. We see here the heart of the Father. The definition of the poor seems quite wide. It's, it's not just financial poverty, but it's physical poverty as well. That's echoed too elsewhere in the Bible. So we read in Isaiah 61 about the kinds of people that God wants to reach, the kinds of people he sees as poor. And there's, we don't have time to read the passage, but I've highlighted it for you. This includes captives, so anybody who's ca- captive in some way, the brokenhearted, prisoners, the persecuted, the bereaved, and those who despair. Because the truth is, there are many different kinds of poverty. You see, you may have money in the bank, but if you're crippled with anxiety, then that's a kind of poverty, isn't it? You may well have a well-paid job, but if your marriage is broken down and you no longer get to see your kids anymore, that's a kind of poverty. If you've been bereaved or made redundant, then you'll be familiar with the kind of loss that's a type of poverty. 
If you've been wrongly accused or forced out of a job, well, then that's a kind of poverty too. Even people who have lots of money and lots of friends but no purpose have a form of spiritual poverty. I'd say even visitors who come to us on a Sunday, maybe sort of trying to work their way into church life and are stood in the foyer or here at the start of the meeting early looking around, they they might be experiencing a kind of social poverty thinking, who will come and speak to me? Will I be accepted? Is there a place here for me? The truth is that most of us at some point or other will experience some form of poverty in our lives, even if it's just a, a short time in a small way. And at that point, we can either try and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps or pretend that it's not there, or we can recognize, no, there's lack, there's poverty in some area of my life. You know, those people at the banquet missed out on all that Jesus had for them because they were so full of themselves, they didn't have room for God. And recognizing our poverty, our own poverty, our need, is what stops us from becoming smug and self-righteous to the people around us. After all, Jesus said it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Um, some of you uh, may know this, but there's a couple of us uh, on staff here who are partway through training to become um, qualified counsellors. And um, as part of that training, uh, I need to deliver 100 hours of counselling, so give 100 hours of counselling, but I also need to receive 40 hours of personal counselling for me. And uh, I remember I've managed to find a great counsellor over in Milton Keynes, who I go and see every, every week. And I remember on my first time driving over there, thinking to myself, you know, 40 hours, that's actually, that's quite a, quite a lot of time. I, I think, to be honest, my counsellor's going to be scratching around to try and find some stuff to talk about. Um, 18 sessions in, um, I can reveal to you, and some of you may be shocked by this, but it, 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 turns, out, it turns out I've got issues. Um, <laughs> I know, I know. I, I, I was surprised too. <laughs> Interestingly, Emma, not so much. Um, I sat her down, I said, darling, you know, I've realised this, that, that there are actually some issues in my life. And she just nodded and said, she said, which ones are you referring to? That was, and so the conversation kind of went on from there. But I realized I've got stuff in my life. I've got issues around self-protection and anxieties and the way I handle that and sort of self-reliance and stoicism and you know, stiff upper British lip. I've got all that stuff that God is working on in my life right now. The point is, We're not meant to be smug, self-righteous, pharisaical, hypocritical, religious people who help the poor out of the kindness of our heart in some kind of patronizing, condescending way. That's the last thing that people in poverty need. Instead, we need to recognize that we are broken, sinful people who have encountered through no work of our own the overwhelming, wonderful love of God, that we have encountered this life-changing, destiny-shaping God. And we are saved by grace. And out of that grace, we can then give out to others. It's nothing of our own. We need to recognize that. We found the one relationship that makes sense of all the other relationships. We've found the unconditional love that then gives us confidence to pour out love to those around us. And as Jesus says in Matthew 10, freely you've received, freely give away. So Jesus makes this very clear to the hearers. And then we see in verse 23, we see the third group that Jesus instructs about. The master commands the servants again to go out again to find not just the poor and the lame, but he says this, 
go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges to search for people. This time beyond the town where people would have naturally congregated and go out and find people. Find the people who are out of the public eye, hidden away. Go and find the people who are the social outcasts. The people who would never expect to be invited to anything. They're not going to come of their own accord. You have to go find them. You're going to have to go and get them, Jesus said. Because they're not expecting to be invited to anything. And notice they're not being invited to a religious service. They're being invited to a meal, to a celebration, to be included, to have food together, to experience social connection. You know, some people say, um, I'd love to help the poor and disadvantaged, but I just don't come across those kind of people where I live. Well, firstly, I'd say to you, be surprised what needs there are behind the closed doors of suburbia. But secondly, I want to say to you, Jesus doesn't afford us that option. It's not whether or not you happen to bump into people. Jesus says, go and find people. So we have people we're meant to go and get. Because they're never going to have the confidence to come on their own. It takes a heck of a lot of courage and self-confidence to walk through those doors for the first time, I can tell you. So we need to go and get some people, demonstrate the love of God to them. It's a non-negotiable for you and I. I, I want to say this as gently as I can, but in the same way that we cannot expect that it's just the people in the orange shirts on a Sunday morning whose responsibility it is to welcome... In the same way, we cannot outsource care of the poor to a few heroes on the King's Arms Project because it's a responsibility of every single one of us, you and me included. It is not an optional extra for the Christian. Otherwise, it's, it's a bit like saying, you know, um, oh, I've wanted to get in shape, um, but the good news is uh, my friend Terry has offered to go to the gym for me. <laughs> You know, and he's, he's doing really well, he's doing three sessions a week, and I, I'm really feeling the benefit. No, no, no. The point is this, it's meant to be your lifestyle. And this is part of the healthy lifestyle for you and I. It's not simply enough to attend on a Sunday. That is not what Christianity is about. It's about an adventure with Jesus on a day-to-day basis. And we need to recognize that this is part of our heritage. You know, um, a few months ago, I was queuing up in the, in the coffee shop. It was kind of mid-morning and it had reached that point where it was time to recaffeinate. And so I was stood in the queue and uh, I was stood behind um, two uh, older ladies and they were, you know how you, well, you probably don't, but I, I eavesdrop. So I was eavesdropping on their conversation. <laughs> I'll be honest. And, um, and one of them leaned to the other one. She, she pulled her in. She said, God, listen, I've got something to tell you. And the, uh, uh, one lady leaned into the other and she said, you'll never guess what. And the other lady said, what? She said, this place here, this is a church. And the other one went, no, it's not. And then she said, yes, it is. No, it's not. And they they sort of carried on like this for some time. Obviously, I could have sort of interjected and and helped them out with the factual information, but it was just too much fun to watch. So I just stood and watched them. And the, the reality is they got to enjoy these premises, and lovely they are. In the same way, you and I, we get to be here on a Sunday morning and hopefully midweek too. But I want you to realize that we don't have these amazing facilities because we were brilliant at fundraising or we had loads of business acumen. Now, the truth is that in the the months and years leading before we purchased this place in 2010, we had a prophetic word. And the prophetic word over us was this. 
as you have housed the poor, so now I'm going to house you as a church. We enjoy these facilities, and I hope you do enjoy them, but we enjoy them because God wants to bless us as we live by his priorities of honoring the poor. That is a non-negotiable for us individually, and it's a non-negotiable for us as a church family. It must never, never change. Think of it um, this way. Um, uh, my son, he's, he stopped playing this season, but for 10 years I took my son Nathan to um, local village football. And uh, he played for his team, Oakley Rangers. And I, I spent many a cold Saturday morning on a touchline uh, watching him play. But probably the highlights was um, when they got to the cup final and they were playing arch rivals, uh, Bromham Wildcats, in a, in a local derby, a clash of the titans. And it was a tense match. Um, and I remember it was getting nearly towards full time. Nathan had played a, a blinding game and they were leading 3-1 and we were desperate for the whistle to, to blow. And uh, finally the referee blows the whistle and the crowd go wild. You know, both of us, uh, me and the other guy on the touchline. <laughs> it's a very exciting moment. We hugged it out, didn't know who he was. And, um, and there was this moment of celebration. But I guess my question is, who, who got the most satisfaction out of that? Was it the people on the touchline? Or was it the people who actually got to play? I tell you, Christianity is not a spectator sport. You were born for more than that. You were born to play your part in an incredible adventure that will shape people's destinies. You were not born to attend and warm a chair on a Sunday morning. There's, there's more for you than that. Otherwise, what will happen is you will start coming on a Sunday and when, when you're just here to receive and be fed and that's all you do, then you start to major on minors. You start to focus on the little things. And, well, the worship was a bit louder than I wanted this morning or uh, the preacher didn't quite scratch where I was itching and the coffee was a bit cold. And you start to find fault in things. But if you're a participant, if you're a player, you think, I'm going to get stuck in with this. I've got a part to play, I've got a role to play here. And the truth is there will never be a convenient time to help the poor. There will always be something else you could do, you know, some oxen to try out or a field to go and look at. There will always be something else to do. And equally too, nor am I pretending that uh, helping the poor and serving the poor is always going to be easy. You know, if you're dealing with people who've got some chaos in their lives, don't be surprised if a little bit of that chaos spills over into your life too. But I love what Mike Pilavachi says when he says this. It's messy in the nursery, but it's neat and tidy in the graveyard. The question is, which one do you want? Do you want the mess of the nursery, or do you want the nice clinical order of the graveyard? You see, you don't have to work on the project to have to give your heart to the poor. It'd be great if you can do that, but not everybody can. But the point is, God has got people for you to invite to the banquet too. I think of two um, elderly ladies, I'm going to call them Beryl and Esther, who came from a local care home. And uh, they came to our Christmas meal that we ran uh, last year, which was a wonderful event. And uh, during the course of the meal, it came, became apparent that they hadn't left their care home in over six months. They literally just had not left the building. Can you imagine just watching the seasons go by and you've not even been able to leave your care home? They came along here and were just blown away by the way they were loved and served. No sooner had the, bank, the banquet, the meal ended, they started thinking about this year's one and could they come to this year's one. Beryl and Esther got invited to the banquet. 
Um, I think about our team that goes into the prison in Bedford. And they run a service in the chapel once a month, amongst other things. And there's this one uh, prisoner, I'm going to call him Gary. And he was really struggling with his relationship um, with his brother. And so much so, he got desperate and started crying out to God. You know, I, I, I want to forgive my, my brother, but I've no idea how to do it. I don't know what forgiveness even looks like. Um, he prayed that on the Saturday night. On the Sunday morning, he decided to go along to the chapel service, not realizing that God had spoken to Ali that week that she should preach and talk about forgiveness. And in doing so, she did an illustration. And part of the illustration was she got a big, heavy weight. And the idea was, this is the weight of unforgiveness you carry. And she needed someone to help her with the illustration. So she looked around and she said, ah, Gary, will you come up? So she brings him up to the front and he literally is held holding, left holding the weight of unforgiveness and then acts it out and gives that weight of unforgiveness over to the person playing God. In that moment, God encounters him. And that night, he writes a letter to his brother telling him that he's forgiven him. Gary got invited to the banquet. One of the poorest groups in our society are those from Eastern Europe who don't have access to benefits. They have literally no means of legitimate support or earning money. So they have to sleep in rough makeshift shelters like this one up here on the screen until they get moved on. Uh, one young man I'm gonna call Peter, was aged around sort of 24, 25. He got support from our outreach team. Uh, this is where he was on the left here and then on the right there. This is where he is now. He got a room in one of our supported houses. And one of the teams said to me that um, in moving him in, that the thing that most struck him wasn't the fact now he had a flushing toilet and a kitchen and that sort of thing. He just kept saying to the team over and over again, now I'm safe. I'm safe. I'll be safe here. I can sleep safe in this place. Peter got invited to the banquet. There's a guy I'm going to call Mike. He had his own flat, uh, but he was getting support from the team at the hostel as it was then. And he'd cycle up regu regularly to meet with them. Unfortunately, um, he was involved in a hit and run. Car knocked him off his bike. He was quite badly injured and then drove on. Um, he needed 50 stitches in his face. So his face was a mess. But the worst part of it was, uh, in the course of the accident, from the impact, he bit his tongue and, uh, and tragically lost an inch off the end of his tongue. It was terrible. And as the surgeons explained to him, that doesn't grow back. That is, that is what it is. He went up to the hostel again, and the team were supporting and loving him. And one of them, who, who really has never done this before, just felt God shove her into saying, can we pray that your tongue grows back? She lays a hand on his sh shoulder, prays for him. Three weeks later, when she sees him again, he pokes his new tongue out at her. <laughs> yeah. She said there was just the tiniest, uh, it's important that we're accurate about these things, she said there was just the tiniest nick left still to grow back on the left-hand side. You know, we, we saw Mike there get invited to the banquet. We've got former residents who've gone on to become social workers, foster carers and adopt children, missions workers overseas, come back and work on projects themselves, managers of hostels and business owners. We're, there isn't time to tell you even a fraction of the stories of what God has done in this place. But if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to say to you this morning, think of it this way. There's a, there's a banquet invitation with your name written on it. But it doesn't just say your name, 
it says underneath that, plus one. Who's the one that you're meant to go and reach out to this week? Is it the elderly neighbor who never gets any visitors? Is it the lonely school mum who always arrives on the playground early in the hope that someone will come and talk to her? Is it the guy that's been ostracized at work? Is it the student that you teach who's being bullied? Who's the one that you're meant to reach this week? How do we respond? I hear you cry. Let me help you with just some scattergun ideas for you as we draw to a close. One thing you could do is this. You could join that team that provides a lovely, fantastic Christmas meal for the elderly this Christmas. There's a need for that. Maybe even take half a day off work to help with that. You could offer to help drive the minibus and get people from the town centre who can't access church otherwise. You could offer to mow the night shelter lawn. You could even carry chocolate in your handbag as you walk around town and pray about who you should give it to and see if you can give it all away before you're tempted to eat it. You could join the Inside Out, which is the prison team that we've got. You could sign up to be part of the new initiative that's being launched for the 30th birthday celebration. 30 for 30. People around the church deciding to give 30 pounds a month in celebration of the 30 years of the King's Arms project. That regular money makes such a difference. Emma and I are signing up for that. We gave a very small amount. We've now decided to increase it as a response to this. You could get the Home for Good newsletter about fostering and pray for that. You could join any one of our groups like Beauty for Ashes, which goes into the Yarlswood Detention Center. You could sign up to be part of the Friday night team, Friday night meeting team. You could help support and join the Living with Illness group. You could join the Well, which cares for some of the elderly in our community. Or radical, really radical, you could do this. You could decide to get to church 10 minutes early every week. And then you could Come in here and see who's sat on their own and just go and say hello. I know, that, I know that's crazy, uh, but you could actually do that. Some of you think, mm, you know, I'd be willing to be martyred for my faith, but get to church 10 minutes early. I'm not really sure about that, yeah? But I'll tell you what happens. People who are new here think, I don't want to be late. I don't want to miss it. So they arrive early. Meanwhile, others of us are a bit more long in the tooth round here. We're a bit more casual about it. The new people sit here, you know, at the start of the meeting, it's like three men and a dog in the room. Worship starts. They perhaps close their eyes, get lost in worship. Two songs later, open their eyes, look around and think, what the heck happened? The room is full. And then at the end, wait, will somebody come and talk to me? You could just decide to walk across the room and shake hands with somebody you've never met before. You know, and as we do these things, we will encounter the love of God afresh for ourselves. Our, our faith won't be just about some principles that we hold in our heads, some theology, but it'll be what we do with our hands and feet as well. And in doing so, it will come alive. You're not meant to just believe Christianity, you're meant to do Christianity. And as we do, this is what the promise of Isaiah 58 says over you and I. It says this, Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. That's the promise over us as we engage with this and embrace this, not just as a belief that we hold, but a lifestyle that we live. Why don't we stand together and pray? Perhaps uh, this might help you concentrate. Perhaps if you choose just to close your eyes for a moment, perhaps lay your hand over your heart. And uh, I'm just going to briefly pray and then hand over to Ali. Heavenly Father, we, we, want to, 
We want to be those that respond to your banquet invitation. We pray, Holy Spirit, would you come and rest on us. Father, take our whole heart, all that we are. Father, we, we don't want to be spectators. We want to be participants. And right now we sign up in our hearts for this great adventure. I pray above all else, would you give us eyes to see. Eyes to see those that are lonely and left out, missed off the list. I pray, Father, for eyes to see and to love the person in front of us with all we've got. I pray, Father, we wouldn't be able to walk through a town centre or across a school ground or through a college campus without seeing those that you love that we're meant to go out to. Spirit of God, rest on us. I thank you for the past 30 years' legacy, but we refuse to allow that to be outsourced to a few heroes. We say we take on the responsibility to love the poor as you would have us do. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah, man.